ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Welcome to another edition of Heart of the Paint with David Grubb. And today I am joined by Sports Illustrated writer Connor Orr. And uh, recently, on August 17th, Connor had the cover story for Sports Illustrated on Joe Burrow, who, as we all know, is a cult figure in two states now, in Louisiana and in Ohio, uh, his native uh, state. Um, Connor went into depth on, on just how Joe is uniquely situated as a quarterback ready to handle um, the situation that he is facing in Cincinnati, trying to lead a franchise that had been pretty much moribund for almost 40 years um, over the last 30 plus years uh, back into relevancy. And uh, so I welcome Connor and thank you for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The Joe Burrow story to me is one of the most interesting in the history of college football and has the potential to be one of the most interesting and unique in the history of the NFL. Um, I go back to, you know, you look at, at, at typically college legends and there's a unique, uh, a, but a very understandable connection between them and their school. You know, Herschel Walker's a Georgia kid. You know, the Michael Vick was a Virginia kid. Joe Burrow was a backup at Ohio State, which the Big Ten can't be more different culturally than the SEC. He comes to LSU. His junior year is unremarkable. I watched that entire year. I didn't see superstar potential over him. You saw some good things. You thought he could be maybe an all SEC quarterback if the team got better. He would, he didn't turn the ball over, which was a good thing, but that wasn't much different than his predecessor in a lot of ways at LSU. No one could have predicted. And if anyone says that they could have predicted 60 touchdowns and six interceptions, a Heisman Trophy, national championship, every major passing record in his senior year. Um, and for him to become Joe Burrow, EU, uh, EAUX, at the end of his career, it's just to see that ascension. Um, just looking at it now, is it something that that you've seen? You know, out of college football stars, uh, you know, coming in that transition to the NFL, it, it, it's an unusual thing for a place like Louisiana to adopt an outsider, the way that they have with Joe Burrow, and then to continue to follow him into his NFL career, which we'll get into in just a moment. Well, I think it's becoming more um, it, it's it certainly was unique for the time. But I think what Joe Burrow's whole thing is emblematic of, right, is is coaching flexibility. You have Urban Meyer at Ohio State and this is my system and it's the way that I run my offense and it's the way that everybody has to be in order to operate in my offense. And then I think what was really shrewd at the time for LSU was to notice, OK, here's a kid that's six, four that's got a foundation anywhere in the pocket. He can handle pressure. He's got a cannon for an arm. Uh, why don't we just take him down here and install like a sensible um, up-tempo spread offense that accentuates his accuracy and see what happens. And, you know, it doesn't take long after meeting him to find out that he's got that, you know, he's got that alpha male in him. He's got the leader in him. Um, and when you put those two things together, you're going to end up having a really, um, a really productive offense. I just think the difference with Joe is he, he had elite traits that I think were just simply uh, whether they were overlooked or undervalued by urban Meyer and Ohio state. 
um, they were certainly something that were coveted by the NFL. And, you know, I, I've said this a couple of times this week, there's probably four or five quarterbacks on planet earth who can do what he does. And man, was, was it a smart move by LSU and coach O to bring him down there? Because, you know, I, I think if he had gone through this recruiting process again, hindsight being 2020, he's the most sought after prospect in, in modern college football history. It's, it's, it's odd, you know, because he was so undervalued. I mean, this was, he was the third stringer at Ohio state didn't get much playing time at all. And as you said, when he comes to LSU, he immediately establishes himself as maybe not as, you know, you still didn't know what his career was going to be like, but he established himself as the leader. You know, the, the, the stories from Ed Orgeron where, you know, he comes out and immediately he's winning every contest in practice. He's meeting with every player. And you have that in your article where you talk about the importance for him at first of just sitting at any table at, 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 um, in the training facility, sitting with different groups. And he had that popularity here. That's extended to the NFL. The, the intangibles that we always talk about with quarterbacks, the, you know, the measurables are important, but it's those intangibles that separate the good from the great. And for Joe Burrow, it seems as if he's got every intangible that you would want. He's got the, the all-American boy personality, but he fits right in with every kind of player. He fits in with the linemen. He fits in with the, the I'll say it like this, he fits in with the black players from the inner city for, or from wherever else. And he's shown that he'll speak up for them and for, you know, for the things that they believe in as well. There's this unique quality about Joe Burrow that he is – in every man, but he is also uniquely Joe Burrow. Yeah, I, I think it's um, you, you never know when you're going to get a guy on campus, what he's going to end up turning into. But I think Joe uh, has always derived that strength from, you know, he's got the same group of friends that he's had since uh, like sixth grade, you know, and um, he's always kind of found his friendships and his sense of community from football. And so when you grow up in that environment, when your dad's a coach, I think that you end up speaking the language a little bit more fluently than somebody who comes late to the sport or somebody who is just individually talented, but doesn't have that team background and that team perspective. And so I think that's, what's unique about Joe's story, but I think it's also, you know, just going back to the Ohio state thing, it's also, you know, when you go to Ohio, LSU, knowing that you thought your football career was over, you're going to approach things kind of like, hey, any day could be my last day here. Um, and I think you're going to have a little bit more of a do or die attitude. And I don't think he didn't have that at Ohio State, but I think that situation has to change anybody's perspective. You know, if if we were told this was the last interview we were able to do or probably the last story that we were able to write, we're going to we're going to approach it a little bit differently than, than I think we would have otherwise. Yeah, it's clear that he was looking for somebody to believe in him and he got an entire state to believe in him. And, and um, he's always been a confident person that that's come across from the moment you meet him. There is this confidence in his abilities um, that you, that you see uh, in his, con his confidence in his understanding of the offense, his confidence, in his ability to place the football, but there's just a self-awareness that he also has that a lot of young people, it was surprising for a young man, his age to be as self-aware and as self-critical as he can be at times, of what he does. He knows like there were games that you would think there's nothing wrong with that game. He's willing right after a successful moment 
to dissect what he did wrong and where he can get better. And that, again, there it's just, like you said, these unique things about Joe Burrow that make him situated for stardom, but also long-term success in a place like the NFL where quarterbacking is, is the, the most difficult position maybe in all of, of pro sports. It's, he has something that most guys just don't have. How did when you, when you were able to talk to him and be in the room with him? Do you feel that? Does it still come across more than just you know in his his words, but also in his presence? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I I've been I've you know I'm like still kind of, I'm like medium range in terms of my career. So I'm 34. So I've been doing this. Um, I think this is my 12th season covering the NFL, and I'd like to think I've built up like a little bit of a BS detector at this point, but. Um, uh, it's certainly not as strong as, as some of the veterans who've been doing this for 20, 30 years, but with Joe, it was super authentic. And I told him that I said, you know, it's pretty unbelievable to me that you can see, you know, and, and sports illustrated is one example, but he had eight other commitments that day to do. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's just one of the most sought after people in the country right now. And, to be able to look at all that stuff and say, that's not important. It's not real. It's not what I'm doing this for. It has nothing to do with me and it's conditional on my success. I, I, I thought I was like, that's just incredibly mature, um, well beyond your years. And I think his parents certainly have something to do with that. Um, like we said, kind of growing up at a football house, I think, but that's just him also. I think that he's always been able to, you know, dive head first into the game winning and losing is what's really important to him and everything that comes along with it. The extraneous stuff is just sort of BS. And especially in the social media age right now, what a healthy perspective that is to have. Right. I mean, that's, that's the way we should all look at this stuff. You know, nothing on Twitter and Instagram is important. It really isn't. And Joe believes that at the bottom of his, you know, at the bottom of his heart, I think we're all sort of working our way there too, you know, but uh, it, you know, I'm 34 and I'm, I'm not as, con- as convicted. I don't have that same conviction that he has in that, you know, he understands the value of his words. He chooses them very carefully. And I'm not saying he's scripted, but he, he understands that when he speaks and when he utilizes social media, that there is this this huge impact that people are paying attention. And I think it's 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 very telling that, you know, typically quarterbacks do not. The NFL is not a place where quarterbacks speak out. Um, it has never been quarterbacks, you know, going back to for me uh, and my memory may be a little bit longer to yours because I'm a little bit older than you. But going back to when there was the quarterback club in the 80s and 90s, where the, the basically they separated themselves from the rest of the players in the league and got their own licensing deals and things like that. There was this separation by that position. And I think there still is financially and power wise um, separation between quarterback and everyone else on the team. Joe Burrow seems to eschew that. He's a member of the team. He knows that there are perks that come along with being the starting quarterback on an NFL franchise, but he doesn't seem to play into the role of, you know, uh, uh, that you would traditionally do it other than I am the leader of this team. I'm responsible for this offense. I'm responsible for these things, but the other parts of it, he doesn't really play into. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Like you come, if you come to a game and you're wearing Cartier or you're wearing a diamond chain, it's almost like he's doing that. And, you know, I don't want to over, um, over kind of make this a scientific thing. You know, I don't know how much of it is really thought out, but it seems like the kind of guy that like, okay, you know, you wear the cool jacket, you wear the sunglasses, you wear the chain because 
that's that's part of what your teammates want to see out of you, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like they want their quarterback to come in dressed to the nines. They want him to look good. Um, they want him to have that sort of mentality because that makes everybody else confident, right? And I think that that's where he, that's where some of the flashiness is derived. But I think everything else, um, you know, you can kind of leave behind, you know? And I think that he's almost, like you said, uh, painfully self-critical because he doesn't want to feel like he's different from anyone else um, because he doesn't see himself as different than anyone else. And he depends on that because, you know, he said my pro teammates, my college teammates, my high school friends, those are the only people I interact with. They're the only people that help me feel normal. And I want to keep that for as long as I possibly can in my life. Um, One of the things that uh, you mentioned was that, 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 you know, the confidence certainly is, is a universal trait for great quarterbacks but Joe's confidence, you know, it doesn't – there are guys, you know, you look at a Tom Brady, you look at Aaron Rodgers, you look at Pat Mahomes, things like that. There's a certain – there's also a bit of arrogance. Joe has that too. He knows what he can do with his arm. He knows he can, what he can do with his talent. But also I think that, that, it, that confidence extends over to his guys. You see him talk up a Jamar Chase. You see him talk up the rest of the guys on that offense um, and, and extend that to them. He's always a very inclusive guy when it comes to that. And I think when you looked at what the team, the Bengals were able to do last year, that spreading of the wealth was very important that no guy got all of the attention. Everybody had their opportunities to shine um, for that team, particularly offensively, because that's what they became known for as the season went on, their ability to strike so quickly, their ability to score points in bunches. But it just, there's, that centering of the team um, in comparison to where outside focus for like a guy like Lamar Jackson, where it's always about what Lamar does, you know, it's always about on the field. It's if he doesn't do this, it doesn't, this doesn't happen for Joe. It's like, well, I got this guy. He's got, he's going to be able to do these things. Joe Mixon tonight. He's going to run for a hundred and something yards tonight. These things he it's, I just like his ability to constantly keep it in the moment. Whereas it's not um, this thing of where he's thinking about next week, the week after he is constantly focused on the moment. And I think that that's also a rare thing for, for an NFL quarterback where he's, it's never too big for him. It's constantly, he understands what right now is. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that's why I kind of came away from it. So convinced that, you know, everybody says that you lose the Super Bowl, you're not going to make it back the next year. It's going to take some time. I, it wouldn't surprise me if they made it back. And I, I I don't think that they're, you know, I don't have them like top three or four really in the AFC, but I could see them, you know, kind of knocking their way through the tournament again, if they made it into the playoffs, because he just, you know, he doesn't have any preconceived notions of what this is supposed to look like. It's kind of the way that he's always operated and it's just, it's, it's refreshing. You know, I think, you can see a lot of these guys get caught up. You can see a lot of these guys, you can see where they take the wrong turn. And, you know, I think everybody can see it from 30,000 feet. Um, but Joe just, you know, I, he's just so dialed in, you know, it's uh, it's, it's really incredible. There's a lack of satisfaction with him. Um, like I said, the job wasn't done last year, but I also enjoyed um, this, the, the portion where he talked about, you know, his relationship with Kurt Warner. And Warner talking about when when they lost that Super Bowl to the Rams, I mean, to the Patriots and saying, I should have enjoyed the journey more. And Joe taking from that and saying, yeah, 
you know, we, we did something no one expected us to do. We got here. We fought through some adversity. There were times where they, they were on the verge of not making the playoffs and they make a run and get there. That appreciation, but also saying, OK, that's not enough, though. And that balance, again, his, it, it's an it's 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 very mature for a guy who's just going into his third season. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to Athens when he was in high school, he lost the state championship game and and really had them within a score of a game that they never should have been in. I mean, that was an all-star team that they were playing against. And Joe afterwards took it really hard. I mean, told his high school coach, he told reporters at the time, he's like, this is the worst day of my life and it's going to bother me for the rest of his life, rest of my life. I talked to his dad who... Uh, I think they lost the Cotton Bowl to Oklahoma in like 1971. And he said that I still have nightmares about that. Still one of the worst days of my life. And Joe, I think, realized somewhere along the way, like I can't, that can't be how I operate anymore. You know, we lost the Super Bowl. Yeah. But here we are at a great place. Kid Cuddy's on stage. Uh, you know, I'm going to enjoy myself. Uh, you know, we earned it. We, you know, there's only two teams left. Um, and we lost to, you know, he didn't say this, but he was to the, to the Rams. I mean, you have Aaron Donald and Sean McVay and, you know, you, one of the best assembled teams I think that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years in, in, in the NFL. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he said you have to learn how to lose and it's not a, it's not a loser mentality, but it's just like, you, you also can't swallow yourself whole and, and devour yourself every time you make a mistake. Yeah. I think the, the pressure that he puts on himself, I don't think he's thinking about last season. It doesn't seem that he views last season, you know, in the way that a lot of teams, and like you said, the, the, the Super Bowl hangover that typically a team that loses the Super Bowl has, I think Joe, he's already put that in the rearview mirror. And, and, and it, from everything you've seen from him this offseason, from everything that you've seen from him, you know, uh, in, in the preseason so far, he's a forward-looking person constantly. And that is such a hard thing to be for many athletes. Like you said, losses tend to linger and hang. But to be a forward-looking young man at 24, 25 years old, that he's about, he's about to be 25, I mean, it's just I, – I, I, I am ceaselessly impressed. And, again, it just it, – it, again, it just paints for me this very unique structure for a guy who comes out of college, won, has won the Heisman Trophy. We know, again, Heisman Trophy winners do not have a great track record of success in the NFL. We've seen it, you know, even the most recent quarterbacks, Johnny Manziel, of course, we know his failures. We know what Jameis Winston has struggled to do and maybe finally getting himself back on track. But from day one, with Burrow stepped on the field in Cincinnati, you could see this that, that special caliber, that special quality about him, and it's been moving forward ever since. How important is that relationship with Zach Taylor in doing that as well? Having a coach that is also going through the young coach growing pains, uh, figuring out the NFL. How do they see each other and how do they relate so well? Because it's much different than an Urban Meyer or an Ed Orgeron, who is a much more hands off, um, big picture kind of coach. Yeah, I think Zach, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think. Mike Brown couldn't have lucked into a situation like Cincinnati means so much to Zach and his wife, like that they get like emotional talking about it. That was where they always wanted to go. Joe is obviously from the area and, you know, playing for the Bengals means a great deal to him. So I think they have that common understanding already that like there is something bigger than them that's, that's happening, you know, here and that they, you know, they feel that kind of sense of service to the area and that kind of ties them together. But more than that, I think, you know, and I missed this with Zach. I, I didn't think it was a great hire initially, but I think 
Um, what I missed was just the way that he's able to manage people. It's really understated, you know, and Joe said it, they're, they're more like really good friends. And it's like, Hey, what do you want to do here? What do you want this to look like? Um, what plays are you comfortable running? And some coaches do that. Some coaches don't. Uh, but I think he understands what makes Joe Joe. Um, he understands, uh, what kind of plays he wants, but more importantly, I think he understands like how he needs to be as a person. And so, you know, Zach isn't going to micromanage anything. He's not going to put him in uncomfortable spots. He's just going to allow his guys to be his guys. He'll step up and fill the void when he needs to, but you know, it, there's a delicate balance with that. It's almost like a baseball manager, right? Where it's more, it's more about vibe and it's more about attitude. And I think that um, the two of them were really kind of tuned in together last year. It seemed. They're both relationship oriented people. And I think that that's, that's something that, that uh, helps a lot. And when you look at the history of the NFL, the co- the quarterback coach relationship, how that evolves is usually the determining factor in the success of the team, the legendary relationship between a Bill Walsh and a Joe Montana, the relationship between a Phil Sims and, and a Bill Parcells, you know, all the way through that evolution of and now Andy Reed and, and, and um, uh, Patrick Mahomes and of course Tom Brady and, and Bill Belichick. This relationship here, I think, you know, obviously getting to the Super Bowl extended Zach Taylor's uh lifespan because there were some struggles. Clearly, like you said, when he first got hired, those first two seasons were not pretty. Um, but now they they've built this relationship. I think that um certainly it gives him some security. And that, I think, ultimately impacts the team as well. When you feel secure in your job as a head coach, that you've got this relationship with your star player, and he's got that confidence in you in return, which it seems that he does with Zach, I think that that filters through the rest of the locker room and the other guys, you get that buy-in too. Because Burrow's buy-in, certainly with his relationship with the rest of the players as he's established, it's created a culture in Cincinnati that they have not had since the late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And if you know, if you know your quarterback's going to be there, if you know your coach is going to be there, I mean, there's always going to be churn at the bottom of the roster. I think that's reality of life in the NFL. But if you're, you know, T. Higgins or, you know, Tyler Boyd or any of these guys, you know you're going to get your catches. Um, you, know, you know the offense is going to be there for you. Um, you know, you're the offensive lineman. You know, you know that Joe's going to get better. He's going to make you look better um, as the years go on. Um, you know, I mean, some of these guys, I mean, I heard about free agents that, you know, went to Cincinnati before Burrow was Burrow. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, hesitation and that's completely flipped. Now everybody wants to go there. Everybody wants to be there to kind of feel that, that collective security and that collective confidence. And that's a big deal. I mean, you know, it's not like that in a lot of other places in the NFL. They made the Bengals cool. And, and, Hard to do. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and as many times as, you know, you watch the old uh, hard knocks and you saw Mike Brown and you're like, this is the cheapest, you know, <laughs> most <laughs> penny pinching. It doesn't seem like their goal is to win. It just seems like their goal is to field the team every year. The Marvin Lewis era of just getting to the playoffs and never having any success. You know, all those things It felt like they were a C plus franchise, like they were content with being a C plus franchise. Now they're cool. Now they're the team that kids are playing on their PlayStations on Madden and they're choosing the Bengals. They're buying Bengals gear in Louisiana, which is, you know, this is Saints country. 
And yet you have the, the Bengals are the second adopted team here. Uh, and uh, the heavy, the heavy following that they had during that Super Bowl run, once the Saints were out of playoff contention, obviously, it's just an amazing thing to see. Um, what do you see coming out of that conversation with Joe, you know, barring the unforeseen, you know, can he be one of the all-time greats at his position? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I, I've said this and uh, I'm, I'm sure he would hate every minute of me saying it, but I, I think he's the closest thing I, I'm, of the younger generation. Um, you know, I, I would include like Patrick Mahomes on down uh, to the guys who are the rookies coming in this year. Um, like that are going to really like replenish when, you know, when Aaron Rodgers is gone, all the, you know, Matt Ryan, all the kind of elite guys that we've been used to for so long. I think he's going to be the closest thing we have to, to a Peyton Manning where, you know, I don't know, maybe he doesn't win, you know, 18 Super Bowls or whatever it is, but I think that you, you have to include them in the Super Bowl conversation every year because, Joe is on the roster, you know, he's that guy. And so even if it's a down year, you're like, well, the Bengals could win nine games because they have Joe Burrow and sneak into the playoffs. If it's a really good year, the Bengals are going to be in the Super Bowl. And I think that's a, that's a compliment that you can extend to Burrow, Mahomes, uh, maybe Josh Allen, but not a whole lot of other guys um, that are in that under 26 club or whatever you want, under 27 club for sure. It's an incredible place to be. And I, I just think it's, um, he's going to be, incredible to watch this season. I mean, I, I think that they're, they are, again, potentially the most exciting offensive team in the AFC, if not the entire NFL. And then, yeah, that watching this group grow up is going to be something else. I want to transition to your latest piece um, on the wide receiver market. And you went in, again, you, you went in depth on this, not just looking at what's happening, but going outside to see the economics of this in an NFL where the economics are changing constantly. Um, do you think that this year, this offseason, with wide receivers both flexing their muscle and trying to demand more money and demanding trades and demanding their, the situations that they wanted, but also the money that was given to wide receivers, is there, has there been an overcorrection in the market for wide receivers? Are we paying too much when we see each year there's wide receivers always a deep position in the NFL draft. There are constantly more and more receivers being developed because of the way the game is being played. Now, are we overcorrecting the market and overvaluing the wide receiver? Well, yeah, yes, but, th but that happens right. Every time um, that happens every time that there's a stagnation for a long period of time. And I think that that's really what we saw from the wide receiver market for a long time was stagnation, stagnation, you know, the, the one guy beats the other guy by 0.1 million. And, you know, you go up, um, you go up the ladder really slowly. Um, and then uh, just the way everybody, you know, just the way that everything changes uh, overnight. Yeah. I mean, everybody's going to get theirs, but I would pay less attention to Devonte Adams and Tyree kill and more attention to Cooper cup who got almost a hundred percent guaranteed contract and his average annual value is a little bit lower. Um, but he's getting almost all of that money, which is significant, for, really significant for the position. Uh, Debo Samuel, I think, was 80 percent guaranteed, um, you know, and, and with Jamar and Justin Jefferson, who everybody's kind of talking about is going to be the next guys. They might not leapfrog Devontae Adams and Tyree Kill. They might not be 32 million a year, but they might be 26 or 27 and they're getting every penny of the 26 or 27. And that's pretty significant. Right. I mean, they're they're the next closest position 
to a fully guaranteed contract, which is which is a big deal in the NFL for sure. Yeah, because for decades, it's been there are four positions that were of the highest value. Quarterback, number one, left tackle, number two, rush end or a rush linebacker and shut down corner. And now you've got wide receivers getting paid more than all of those positions except for quarterback. And it's, you know, we've seen the devaluation of the running back, but now for wide receiver to ascend into that, into that echelon, it just, it's a, it's a very interesting place for the NFL to be because we know the NFL a doesn't like to give out guaranteed money. This is not, you know, because injury is always a play away. And, and then that reposition again, We've seen teams, and like you said, up until 2019 in your article, you didn't have to have a collection of great receivers. You might have one, you know, outside of the greatest show on turf. We weren't looking at teams stocking up three and four great receivers. You had one maybe primary guy, and you worked it around. Um, the Patriots, you know, did it primarily with Gronk at tight end and a collection of guys at receiver from year to year. Now you're seeing teams put this emphasis on these receivers, is there also a skewing of it too? Because you've had these young guys come in like a Jamar Chase, like a Justin Jefferson, um, and, uh, you know, coming out of LSU in particular, but you have this skewing of like, you're looking at there's this abundance of young receivers every year who seem to be coming in and setting records. How are you going to go up from there um, when these guys are, are, are up for their second contracts? Yeah. Um, it's, it's going to be, um, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Right. I mean, I've talked to um, I've talked to some uh, people in the league who are saying, you know, I'm not playing this game. I'm not going to pay the premium game. I'm going to invest in other positions. And while everybody's going light and fast, we're going to go heavy. Um, and, you know, I'll get those guys cheaper. Um, it, it all depends. You know, I think the NFL is a copycat league. And if you see the Buccaneers win with Godwin and Mike Evans, and then the Rams win with, Cooper cup and Odell Beckham and, and kind of all the talented players that they had, there's that. And, and even what the Bengals were able to do with, with Jamar and Tyler and, um, and all those guys, there's, there's obviously a, a and you know, you want to go out and, and, and get that similar setup for your quarterback. But I, I always lean towards, you know, Belichick built a dynasty off of, you know, when teams were doing that, he was investing in the tight end position. Um, when teams were all switching to four, three defenses, he switched to a three, four. And, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's interesting, right? There's going to be the guys who chase the trend and it ends up paying off for them. But I think there's going to be more teams who allow this bubble to burst and acquire all the great players that other teams aren't interested in and build a sustainable uh, contender out of. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that works. Uh, That said, statistically over time, Receivers are the quickest position to acclimate to the NFL. Um, you get the most production out of wide receivers faster than any other position in the draft. So there is some analytics there at work, but you know, where's, where's your true value? You know, for me, I'm, I'm thinking I can get five tight ends in the third, fourth, fifth round and pay them half as much and get twice the production. You know, that's kind of, you know, that, that's something that kind of interests me personally, you know? I mean, yeah, I, I look at, you know, for Sean Payton throughout his career, the, the best receiver he ever had. And I mean, we could talk about Michael Thomas, but he's going off two straight years of injury. But I mean, his most productive receiver was a seventh round pick. 
and Marcus Colston and the guys that he had, the, the, the team that he took to the Super Bowl with Lance Moore. These these were not premium guys. You know, the, the, the most high profile guy on the team was Jeremy Shockey, who was past his prime at the, the time. So it, yeah. it's it's. And you look at teams that do have the Minnesota Vikings have two elite ride receivers on the outside. They have a very good tight end, but they're not a great team. You know, uh, Calvin Johnson was the best receiver in the NFL and the Lions never won a playoff game. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, like you said, it's a copycat league, but I think teams you also look very much at who the trigger man is. You know, what I mean, like the, it still comes down. The, those same receivers were in Tampa when when Jameis Winston was there. And they weren't winning, but you added Tom Brady and the offense changes, things improved that. And also your defense became elite. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a number of dominoes at play and it's interesting how general managers respond in these situations and maybe don't look at all of the pieces and think that they can find a magic bullet, which, and we know in the NFL, there are no magic bullets other than you better have a quarterback. Better have a quarterback, and you better have a you better have a a good play caller. I mean, that's you know those those are those are I mean you know all the talented receivers in the world. If you don't have a game plan to get them the ball, I mean look at look at the Browns with Freddie Kitchens, you know, and that ruined a lot of people's careers, you know, or at least that you know gave them pretty significant speed bumps. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's ultimately what it boils down to. But you know, this is a cyclical thing, right? Owners don't seem to see it. Uh, you know, some general managers don't seem to see it. And it's just a game of, you know, um, you know, kind of chase, chase the trend, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But ultimately everybody's kind of chasing their tail. Right. So it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see where it, where it comes out, but uh, you know, cause five years from now is probably when we look back and say like, wow, either the Raiders and the dolphins are really smart or that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen two NFL teams do is waste that much equity on a, on a veteran whiteout. I'm really concerned with the dolphins. Like that one is really concerning to me because I haven't seen, I wasn't a big Tua guy anyway, when he came out of Alabama, I didn't see those things that made him special. I think that, you know, he was special in an Alabama offense and a lot of guys have been special in that Alabama offense. And he had a lot of special guys around him, but in the NFL, it doesn't work that way. You can't just out talent people because everybody's got talent. And I just don't know if, you know, and you see the comments this week, you talk about two of throws, the most touch, catchable and beautiful ball you've ever, that they've ever seen. It has not translated when he's been healthy. So again, like that combination of the play calling is going to be so important for him and his development himself. They can put Jerry Rice in his prime and Randy Moss on the other side, but if you're not setting them up and your line isn't protecting, it doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. And and so, you know, I I, I think you're right. We'll see in a, I don't think it'll be five years from now when we'll be talking about this. They have to win now. Both of those teams, the Raiders and the Dolphins have to put themselves in the postseason and get a, a legitimate um, win. You know, you can't just get there and lose because everybody can get to the playoffs essentially now in the NFL. They've got to be they've got to make noise. And I don't I don't know if those either of those deals are, are legitimately going to do that for those teams. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the Dolphins. I think I'm especially worried about Tyreek because. I think they got him not, you know, th- this isn't going to be Tyreek and Jalen running verticals and th- scoring 80 yard touchdowns. Tyreek's getting the ball at the line because he'll be able to turn one yard into four yards and he's going to have to do that a lot. And I don't think he's going to enjoy the impact nor, nor should anybody, nor, nor would anybody, the impact that's going to have on your body. You're essentially going to be a running back. Um, 
and your yards per catch average is going to go probably somewhere from 15 down to seven or eight. And that's not a whole lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, so, but you know, you have to get, you have to get your money before you get out. I understand that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's that, I think that's going to be a tough situation. Devontae played with uh, Derek Carr, so I think there, there's some there's some relationships there. Uh, I think they'll they'll be okay. I, I had them win like nine nine games, I think this year. I think they'll be pretty good. But yeah, the Tyreek thing, I think I give that six or seven weeks before that starts blowing up. Yeah, it, it just a, a rookie coach, a guy who's used to winning, who's been you know in either the AFC Championship or the Super Bowl over the last few years. And, and, and a franchise that does not have a record of recent success and a quarterback that still has to prove himself, there's a lot of variables that spell trouble for Miami. It's just there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And, and then you have all the other things that are hanging over that franchise from the Stephen Ross issues and those types of things. It just feels like Miami is just set up to have a very long, tough season. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> Tough spot. I don't, I don't envy being Mike McDaniel, but uh, you know, there's only 32 of those jobs, right? So you got to take it when you get the chance. Absolutely. Cause they may not come around a second time. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, before I let you go, I wanted to get some thoughts on Deshaun Watson. Um, it's not over. I know people want to say like, well, you know, the punishment's been done. It's not over. I had a, I had a good conversation with a sports uh, law analyst uh, earlier this week, Dan Lust. And we talked about this, essentially the suspension is two point, uh, 2.75 games per allegation, you know, of what the NFL presented, um, which is a very odd precedent to set when it comes to sexual assault. And you see this dividing line that's been put in Cleveland, which has already been a place, like you said, just on the field with how they, the Odell Beckham, the Jarvis Landry, all these things have ended over Baker Mayfield over the last few years. You have these problems. You go into this with the guy who is, yes, talented. But you also have Jimmy Haslam handling this very poorly at his press conference. You have Deshaun apologizing, taking back the apology, and then apologizing again for things that, again, he says he didn't do. It's It just seems that the NFL has misplayed this, but they consistently misplay these type of things. And what they're counting on eventually is fans will do what fans do. As long as the product is there, that they'll move on. But I think that they made another huge mistake also in making his return date against the Texans. I just I don't I don't I just don't understand sometimes that make it 12, you know, make it 12. Don't make it 11. If that return date is going to be the Texans, you're just inviting more your attention to a story that you are trying to get past. Yeah, I mean, that certainly doesn't help our cynicism as a broader public. Right. Where, you know, we're like, OK, that's the game you want him back for. Um my only defense of the league at this point is I think that even though it doesn't look like it, that suspension as written is kind of a, a sneakily a indefinite suspension because if their third party behavioral analyst doesn't see him after 11 games as truly remorseful, and I don't know who this analyst is, you know, and there's a lot of question marks there too, but if this is a real psychological professional, um, with years of experience that wouldn't be able to get duped by someone. I'd be interested to see what happens at the end of 11 games. If Watson is still out there saying, you know, I didn't do, I've never disrespected anyone in, in my life. It's, it, it's a, it's an eye opening thing to say that, right. First of all, to equate what you're being accused of with disrespect, I think is a tough look, but also 
if you honestly believe that you've never, never disrespected anyone in your life, that's also a difficult place to start. And as a behavioral expert, over the course of 11 weeks, can you believe, can you make someone understand that, yeah, you've disrespected people and you might've done a whole lot more than disrespected some people, you know, you've seriously altered the course of people's lives and made it difficult for them to go to work and, um, and, and just exist at home, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know, um, how will he be at the end of 11 weeks? It's going to, you know, it's, you know, I think the world is going to kind of watch is the NFL just going to hopefully try to sweep it under the rug and just get him back on the field. Probably. But um, will they hold their feet to the fire at the end of 11 weeks and say, is this guy really rehabilitated in any way, shape or form? I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be worth watching. That's for sure. It's just odd whenever you have a judge use the words. You've proved your case. It's say the NFL proved their case. You say this is egregious and all. I mean, they were very strong terms. Predatory. Yes. And, you, and then you put these conditions like you can never get a massage outside of the team facility and all these things like that. And you come back and it's 11 games. And we've seen, like I said, when you when you have other players noticing this, you know, <laughs> who are saying, I got a year for gambling, which uh, not on, you know, you know, not on my team. And I was doing it through a legal way, but certainly violating the league's rules. But Calvin Ridley's like, I get a year. And you look at Ray Rice, who lost his career over an incident um, that is, was just as egregious, but was one incident that he paid for and, 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 and went through the legal system and took care of. There's still stuff pending, too, with Deshaun Watson. There's still cases that are open. And we're talking about potentially 60 women, you know, based on what the numbers that were reported. So it just seems that the NFL tried to close the book on this really early. And, yeah, there's the open-endedness of how do you define if his, his level of remorse. But then again, if they say no, is there an appeal for Deshaun at that point? Does he come back and say, well, who is this person to say that I haven't uh, applied sufficient remorse? And what does that mean going forward? So it's like the NFL has put itself in a very in-between position. They don't have their foot strongly in, in either side of this. Yeah, um, but but that is, that's the hallmark of the Roger Goodell commissionership, right, is – I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be tough, but I want to be lenient. I want to be, you know, democratic, but I want to be Republican. I want to be, you know, uh, you know, and, and that's the way that he's operated throughout. And, you know, maybe, you know, the fact that we're still watching makes them think that they're getting away with it, even though I think slowly there is a growing and hardening sort of cynicism from everybody that isn't just there to play fantasy football, you know, but, there's a lot of people that are just there to play fantasy football, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I think they'll be okay, okay ultimately as, as, as much of a bummer as that is. And I think the other part that's going to linger too is the contract situation, because ultimately a $5 million fine that becomes a tax deduction for Deshaun Watson in a year where his salary is basically nothing um, that he'll lose, you know, he, he's losing nothing because his entire contract is, is guaranteed. He's getting this incredible amount of money this financially, this is not a deterrent either. No, um, but ultimately, you know, uh, I think that the, you know, ultimately I think that it's up to him, right. To, you know, if, if there's some way, shape or form, I think to lead him to a place where he has to become a, genuinely accountable for this, 
that's really to me what I think matters the most for the victims. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, for a lot of us that have watched this thing play out, um, and for the fans who are really turned off by it, I mean, everything else is, is accounting in a lot of ways, shape or form. I mean, yes, you know, the contract looks gross and egregious to everybody. The, um, the fine doesn't seems like it's a drop in the bucket, but, if it was a hundred million dollar fine and he still walked around for the rest of his life saying that I did nothing wrong, I think people would gladly take the inverse of that, which is, Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry for, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and genuinely sorry. um, And, and, and and have it shake out that way. So we'll see. I mean, you know, some, you know, this, this might just be one of those things that takes time, even though right now it, it, it seems to be very unsatisfying. It's just, it's an, it, I guess the parallel for me is I look at, you know, a guy like Michael Vick, who, you know, did prison time, lost his guaranteed contract with the Falcons, came back and did everything he was supposed to do. You know, Mike Vick was an advocate again, you know, became an advocate for stopping dog fighting, for changing that culture, for, you know, worked with animal or, animal rights organizations and, and, and in protecting those things. And he still there are pockets of this country where he's still viewed as a horrible person and he's done everything he could possibly do. Same with Ray Rice. And I mean, I'm, I don't think you ever want to forget what they've done, but at some point Ray Rice, you know, came back and he said, yeah, I know what I did was wrong and I'm going to do these things to try to make it right. But he's still seen as a villain in all of this. But Deshaun has kind of escaped that, in a lot of ways, because I guess he's in the prime of his career and people are, you know, there are a lot more people. And I think it also speaks to the culture that we have with uh, women in general and how we look at those things and, and, and whether or not people want to believe them or not. But it's something the NFL is still going to have to deal with in the future. And, and for all their talk that they did after the Ray Rice and the aftermath of that, of having women in the front office who could deal with these issues, it still feels like the NFL has got a long way to go in catching up to where the rest of society is on this. Yeah. And, and it's tough, right? I mean, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, we've, we've all made mistakes to varying degrees in our lives. And uh, I don't think that, you know, anyone would want to be defined by, by their worst moments. But I just think that there's a difference. Like you said, if you become an advocate for the change, um, you know, then I think that like anybody else, you deserve a benefit of the doubt. I I'm sure that there is some genuine contrition on the behalf of Michael Vick. You know, I'm sure that there was some genuine, you know, there's absolutely some genuine contrition on behalf of Ray Rice. And, I think Derek Carr said it a couple last year with the Raiders, right? It's like, you can, you can hate the sin and love the person, you know? And um, as a society, you hope that's where we can get to where, you know, where maybe people in Deshaun's camp don't feel the need to, to, to be so defensive about it and to just be like, yeah, I mean, something, something happened here that really messed up a lot of people's lives and made people really upset. And, um, and, you know, I mean, these women are having a hard time going to work, you know, um, they carry pepper spray with them now, you know, is that any way for somebody to, to live a life? So um, you just hope that we can come to at some point a place where, um, you know, we, we can, you know, people can feel like they can be forgiven, but are also eager to put the work in to get to that point, you know, um, and, and who knows, you know, I mean, that's what the NFL is trying to design through this punishment, but, but we'll see what ends up happening ultimately. Connor, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, can you tell the folks how they can keep up with your work and what you're, what, what, 
what besides what's out now, what are you working on? Uh, um, I would say fi- you can uh, follow me on Twitter, just uh, at Connor or um, in my, my name, but subscribe to the magazine, man. It's, it's still great. It's, it's uh, I just got my copy in the mail yesterday, football preview issue, college football preview issue. We've really talented staff, um, you know, really, really talented young writers. You know, I think we have our best baseball writers, college football writers, uh, you know, in the business uh, and magazines loaded, you know, every, uh, every uh, month. So I would say subscribe. It's a great deal. You get a digital subscription too. So uh, do yourself a favor. All right. Again, man, thank you again for joining me. I appreciate the conversation and I hope we get to talk again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, until the next time, I'm David Grubb. You know how to follow me at DM Grubb on Twitter and Instagram and check out Pardon the Paint at HITPwithDG.com. And you can also um, get the Harden to Paint podcast wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever. So until the next time, I'm David Grubb. Talk to you soon.